Well, I love that story, and I, we share that just to remind us that the Lord is at work, and the Lord is calling people to himself. The Lord is creating this new people of his own possession, and, and he's calling people from the most broken places in the most unexpected ways. And, and the power of the church, the power of God working through his church, through his people, even through Simple things like we saw in the video, a small group praying for a guy that showed up. It's probably very inconsistent, just ministering to him, loving him, and God interacting in his life in this powerful way. I, I want you to see what, what the power of the church really is. One of the mistakes that we've made in our understanding of the church is that we have come to understand the church fundamentally as an event. Fundamentally is this, as, as, as an event that happens, a, a worship gathering, which is an important part of church life. But we've fundamentally understood the church is, is only this. And so when you're here, you're in church. When you leave here, you're not in church, right? We, we've understood the, the church as something you attend, something you go to, or maybe a building that you go to. When, when really what we see in scripture is that the church is a people. Fundamentally, it's a people, a people that have been called out, called out of this world, called out of the ideologies, called out of the identities, called out of the sense of purpose and meaning that this world gives and called to the Lord Jesus. The people that are called to know Jesus as the Lord of their lives, to follow Jesus as their master, to recognize that Jesus is God. That's who the church is. It's not an event, it's a people. And our recognition of Jesus as Lord doesn't end when we leave the church gathering, right? Now, this is important. The, the gathering of the church is important. What we're doing now is incredibly important. The, the church has this beautiful rhythm of gathering, which is what we're doing now, and then the scattering in less than an hour. We're all gonna scatter out all over the city. And, and really, this series that we're entering into, Life in Babylon, we're, we're talking about that. The, the potential that the church has when it scatters, when, when we go out into our, our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, when, when we go out as ambassadors for the Lord. Now, I wanna talk about the scattering though, because the scattering of the church is changing. We, we scatter into a world that is more secular than it's ever been at any point, certainly in, in my lifetime, and that is growing in its, in its secularity. Most of us grew up, and even if you grew up in Atlanta, most of us, certainly not all of us, but most of us grew up in a place, you know, in a time that there may not have been a lot of Christians. It's not, I'm not saying that everyone around you was a Christian, and I'm using the word Christian to talk about a Christian, a follower of Christ. So you may have been said, well, I knew people that said they were Christians, but they weren't really Christians. So I understand that maybe there, you weren't surrounded by tons of Christians, but maybe you were. But it was an age, it was a time that was more Christianized. And I'm using Christianized there, not to refer to people that actually are Christians necessarily, but an age that recognizes a moral superstructure that flows out of Christianity. The, 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 the word that we used when I was a kid was the Judeo-Christian ethic, right? It's a Judeo-Christian values, Judeo-Christian ethic. There was this, this moral superstructure that created, again, 
I'm not saying there weren't Christians, I'm not saying there were, but it was a Christianized, there was Christian influence in the culture at large. So many of us grew up in that world. We, we understood a morality in that place. But of course, we, we, we are moving more and more into a culture today that is very different. It's much more secular in its nature. It, it's, it's much more in some ways opposed to this kind of Christian ethic or this Christian moral structure. And oftentimes when, when Christians enter into a, a world that disagrees with them, what we have done traditionally, and these, neither of these are new ideas, these are things that Christians have done for centuries, is that Christians either assimilate, and, and to assimilate means that we kind of come up with a Christianity that's more acceptable. It's not necessarily that we drop all Christian symbols or Christian claims, but we only drop the Christian claims that don't agree with the culture around us. So we, we, we kind of get a doctrine or get a worldview that is acceptable in the secular age. We assimilate into the culture. Or what Christians have done is we separate. We kind of create our own separate Christian enclave. Now, what's interesting is the reason that Christians assimilate and the reason that Christians separate is the same reason. It's because both are more comfortable. It's hard to be around people that disagree with you. It's hard to hold on to truth claims in a world that doesn't recognize those same truth claims. And so people kind of adapt their truth claims to the world around them. So we don't have to be disagreeable all the time. Or we separate, right? We kind of form a Christian enclave of people that, that do agree with us. The word that people are tossing around now is echo chamber, but we, we, we form a, a separate group of people that, that will affirm what we believe and we, we try to limit at least interactions that we may have with people that might disagree with us. And again, the reason that we tend to do this is it's, it's more comfortable. It's easier, especially in an age, or especially about things that are so heavy and weighty, right? It's, it's hard to disagree with people about things like the meaning of life or your eternal destiny or where truth comes from. We, we, we tend toward assimilation or separation, but, but what's interesting is that in Scripture... So much of what we see in Scripture doesn't really push us in one of these directions or the other. So much of what we see in Scripture, Christians are called to be faithful to Jesus, meaning don't assimilate, but we're called to engage, to share our faith, uh, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of hardship. I mean, if you, if you look at the New Testament church planting strategy, what was it? It was Christians going to influential parts of the city, places that disagreed with them, and faithfully preaching the gospel, pray faithfully preaching Christ. So how do we do this? I mean, that, that's really the big question I'm trying to answer with the Life in Babylon series. How do you live in a secularizing age as a confessional Christian without assimilating, without losing the confession, or separating without being present in the age? How do, we, how do we hold firm to the truths that we see in Scripture in an age that strongly disagrees with it? How do we do that? Now, over the next few weeks, we're gonna look at uh, how we do this really in the Word of God. I mean, the, the, the good news for us is that Christians have been here before. The people of God have been here before. There's a lot to learn uh, from Scripture exactly about how we work this out. But, but I wanna begin today 
with an important passage. It's a passage that we've looked at before that I think really lays some groundwork for us. We're going to be in Jeremiah 29. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me, Jeremiah 29. If you've been with us, we've been studying the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is written right before the Babylonians came and took over the people of Israel and took them into exile. If if you've been with us, we've been talking about that. God says the Chaldeans, which are also the Babylonians, you can use those words interchangeably, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are coming and it's going to be bad. Jeremiah is now written when the people are in exile. So all of this bad stuff has happened and now God is speaking to his people. That's what a prophet does. It's, it's, the prophet speaks on behalf of God. God is speaking to his people through the prophet Jeremiah and saying, this is how you live in this context in Babylon. It's very, very different than it was when you were in Jerusalem. How do you now live in this very different context? And I think what he says here is incredibly encouraging to us. So Jeremiah 29, let's begin in verse one. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the Babylonians, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. So that's the context, right? We've moved from Jerusalem to Babylon. And, and a lot of that, I think for, for a lot of us, that kind of makes sense. You, you may have grown up in a, in a culture where most of the people around you kind of agreed with you. You may have grown up uh, in a town that was very Christianized, and now you find yourself in a context where people very much disagree with you. So that's the same context these people were in. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Here's what it said. Here's what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I, this is God speaking, God says, who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and have daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord. That's the, when you see the capital word, Lord, pray to the Lord. This is Yahweh. Pray to your God, Yahweh, the Lord God, on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and diviners here among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill you my promise and bring back to, you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back. I will bring you home to the place from which I have sent you into exile." This is the word of the Lord. 
Two things I want to look at with you, and I think this will help us in this series and hopefully help you with your life and help us understand this passage. Two little points. First of all, who we are as citizens of the city of God and who we are as citizens of the city of man. Now, I'm taking these two ideas, city of God, city of man, from Augustine. I know the traffic was bad. I gave out some books earlier. And we talked about Augustine. He wrote this famous book called The City of God. And and it's a 1,600-year-old book, but it's incredibly helpful for our context. When Augustine was writing this, the unthinkable had happened. Rome, this city that had dominated the entire world for a 1,000 years, had been sacked. It was the impenetrable city. And yet this Germanic group, the Visigoths, had come into Rome and basically had their way. Intentions were high. People were very divided. The church was confused. How was the church supposed to continue? What was the church supposed to do? Was this the Christian's fault? Should Christians just retreat into little enclaves of monastic and separate Christian life? Or was the, were the Christians supposed to kind of assimilate into more of a cosmopolitan culture and kind of adopt some of the pagan rhythms of Roman life? And Augustine writes this book, and basically what he does is he confronts all of this, and he speaks into Roman life, and he critiques Roman life, and he points people to Jesus. But the way that he does it, the way that he does it is he says, when you become a Christian, you, you kind of ultimately, automatically, instantly become a dual citizen. You get a dual citizenship, as it were. And you have a citizenship, your primary citizenship, your fundamental citizenship, is as a member, as a citizen of the city of God. But you also have a God-ordained citizenship as a member, as a citizen of the city of man. And this is very important. I mean, this is, this is very important. What Augustus is saying here is just reflecting on scripture. How you understand yourself to be who you are as a citizen of the city of God will dramatically inform how you live life as a citizen of the city of man, and how you live your life in the city of man. How you work out your life in the here and now, in whatever place the Lord's called you, that's actually part of your worship. It's part of who you are as a citizen of the city of God. So I wanna look at this, first, who you are as a citizen of the city of God. Now, this time, the time that Jeremiah was writing, is an incredibly disorienting time in the life of Israel, just like when Augustine was writing, and I think in some ways just like today. I mean, these were the people of Israel. (laughs) They were the promised people of God. God was supposed to protect them and take care of them. God had brought them out of Egypt. He'd established them. They built this great temple, right? And and the worship of God was everything. And, And the way that they treated the temple and the holy place It was so important to them. We were talking about this. We're reading through the book of Daniel in our daily rhythm. And Will's been bringing out this point. I mean, how disorienting must it have been to the people of God? They'd had all of this time focused on the worship of God, focused on the practice of godly discipline. And now this enemy nation, these horrible people, the Chaldeans, march right into Jerusalem, march right into the temple and desecrate it. And God doesn't strike them. I mean, you know, How disorienting must this have been? And so a lot of the Hebrew people at this time were saying, where is God? What is he doing? What is God up to now? Is there a God? Has God just totally abandoned us? Does God hate us now? 
And the first thing that we see in this passage or that I want us to look at in this passage is God reassuring them. No, I haven't abandoned you. I'm still in control. In fact, I've, I'm doing this. <laughs> this. This is what I am doing. It doesn't seem like what I would do, but it's exactly what I am doing. Look at verse four with me. You got it on here. Verse four, God says, thus says the Lord of hosts, this is amazing, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom, and this is amazing, I have sent. Kind of saying you're in exile, but I sent you there. I have purposes for you, my people that I love to go from Jerusalem to this wicked city, Babylon. And of course, we know that God has purposes. One of his purposes was to purify them through punishment. I mean, this punishment was ultimately gonna be for their good. They had forgotten about God. They had become an unholy people. One of God's purposes was to lead them to dependence on God. They had become totally self-reliant. They didn't worship the Lord. They didn't trust his ways. They didn't listen to their prophets. And of course, one of his purposes, and this is a shocking purpose, we're gonna talk about it more later, was to actually do good and to bring a blessing to the people of Babylon, which in their context, in their culture, would have been a shocking thing to hear. But look at how God reassures them. I wanna skip down to verse 10. Look at how the Lord just reassures them. Thus says the Lord. I love this. When 70 years are completed, you're gonna be there for 70 years, but when 70 years are completed, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you the promise. I will bring you back to this place. For I know what I'm doing. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And they're for your welfare, not for your evil. They're to give you a future and a hope. You'll, you'll call upon me and come to me and I will hear you. I will hear you because I love you. You'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with your whole heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore you. Your fortunes, I will gather you from all the nations where I have driven you. I will bring you back home. I will bring you back to this place where I have sent you into exile. So do you hear what God is saying to the people here? He's saying, I still love you. I've not abandoned you. I have purposes for you to be in Babylon. So don't forget who you are. Don't forget that you are the chosen people of God. Don't forget that you are my people, this people for my own possession. We know each other. We will be found by one another. We're to be united with one another. I'm going to bring you home. Don't forget who you are. I've sent you into exile. But don't forget who you are as exiles in this strange place. What's interesting is the New Testament authors, okay, New Testament authors, this language, this exile language, the New Testament authors pick up on. And they actually describe the church. This is very important for you to understand. They describe the church in the same way. They're saying in a first century context where Christians are being mistreated, where Christians aren't really being accepted by the culture around us, the, the, first, the first century Christian authors are saying, remember when the people of God were in exile. You need to learn from them. That's how you are to understand yourself. God, if you go through persecution, if you face hardship, it's not because God has abandoned you. It's not because God doesn't love you. No, it's part of God's purpose. You're in exile. He's going to bring you home. You are his people. God has created in the same way that he created this people of Israel. God in Jesus is creating this whole new kind of man. And if you know Jesus... Andrew's story, if you've met Jesus and you've come into communion with the living God, it'll radically change your whole life. It'll change the way you think about yourself. It'll change everything about you. 
The analogy that Jesus gives, when Jesus talks about this, he says, what is, what is following me like? Is it like having a new hobby? Is it like getting a new job? Is it like moving somewhere else? As radical as those, all those things can be for our identity, you know, Jesus says, to, to, if, when you really know me, it's being born again. It's having a totally different birth identity. You are a totally different person. You're a totally different kind of people. So we see this kind of language. We're going to look at this passage in a few weeks, but, but, but Peter picks up on this. He walked with Jesus. He knew Jesus. And here's how he's encouraging the church. He's saying, you now, Christians, you're a chosen race. You're the priesthood. You're the holy nation. You're the people of God's own possession, that through you, God may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Now, what's interesting about this, I think Peter's actually using language that these people that were a part of the Roman world would have known. Rome used to talk about itself like this. I mean, you all have seen Gladiator, they, they use this kind of language. The world is dark, but Rome is the light. What Peter is saying here is, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, the world is dark, but Jesus is the light. His people are the true light of the world. He is the one who has marvelous light. You know, every Roman citizen, they would have been proud of their Roman citizenship. You know, if they were ever captured or, or questioned by a foreigner, they, they just would have had to say three words, civis romanus sum. I am a Roman citizen. We actually see this in the New Testament also. Paul uses this. And everybody had been like, okay, don't mess with them. They're a Roman citizen. That means that the whole weight of the Roman world is behind them. What Peter is saying is, in Jesus, you've been called by such a king that has so much weight and so much force, you've been called into his eternal light kingdom that you have a citizenship, an identity that transcends any other kind of citizenship, any other kind of identity that you think you could have. You're a new kind of person. You've been called to be a new kind of people. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. You're a citizen of the city of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you've received God's mercy. And then notice the language here. What does he use? This is fascinating. I urge you as sojourners, which means people that are passing through, foreigners, and exiles, there's the language. Abstain from the passage of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. What is he saying there? Don't assimilate. <laughs> so he's saying, don't, don't become like the, the, the broader culture around you. You are in exile. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, the world's not gonna understand you. They may see your good deeds. What is that saying? Don't separate Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, follow God, don't assimilate, but they may see your good deeds and what? God gets glory on the day of visitation. It's fascinating what Peter is doing here. He's saying, remember the exile. That was a time when it seemed confusing, it seemed disorienting, and now we're in a very, very similar time. But remember who you are. The people of God have been here before. The people of God have been strangers in a strange land before. And remember what is true of you. Jesus is creating a new kind of people. You have a new kind of citizenship. He is the light. He is the true king. Your true identity, your true citizenship is a citizen of the kingdom of God. This is not your home. This is not your home. 
And what Peter is doing here is he's, he's basically saying, learn from the exiles. And what we can do is say, learn from these first century Christians how to live in exile, how to understand our true identity. And I love this ambassador language, this ambassador exile language. You know, it's fascinating. The New Testament, when it talks about who we are, this is the language that it uses. It's not immigration language. Immigration at its end has assimilation in mind, right? I am of Scottish descent, the Dees family, hail from the Dundee region of Scotland. But I don't think of myself as a Scottish person, right? I've immigrated, right? My family immigrated to America. I, I think of myself now as an American. I've become a part of a new kind of people. I have immigrated. That's not the language that the New Testament uses. The New Testament says, no, <laughs> this is never gonna be your home. You're an exile. You're an ambassador. When we send ambassadors, when the United States sends ambassadors to other countries, like if we send an ambassador to Germany or Italy, we don't expect them to become German or Italian. Now they get on with the Germans and the Italians. They do good for the Germans and the Italians, but they're Americans and their sense of identity, their sense of wealth, their sense of security, their sense of culture comes from who they are where their true citizenship lies. To be a Christian, I want you to hear this, to be a Christian means that fundamentally you see yourself, primarily you see yourself not as an American, not as a Republican, not as a Democrat, not as a business person, not as a teacher, but fundamentally as a citizen of the city of God, where Jesus himself is your ruling king and where your peace and your comfort comes from your king, your, your true king. Now, here's, here's why this is hard for us. This wasn't so hard for these Jewish people in exile. They knew they were exiles. It wasn't so hard for first century Christians because, you know, first century Christians, they knew they were different. I mean, no one was recognizing them. They were being persecuted. Why this was hard in Augustine's day and why this is hard in our day is is what I was just talking about. The world around us has become Christianized. The, the, in, in Augustine's day, what had changed from the first century to the fifth century is that the Roman Empire had become a Christian empire. And so when the city of Rome was attacked, everyone kind of equated that to God is being attacked, right? And so Augustine had to correct them and say, no, 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 the city of man is under attack. The city of God is just fine. The city of man, yes, it's facing turmoil right now, but the city of God is solid. And you know, there's a little bit of that same thing, or maybe there's a lot of bit of that same thing kind of bred into who we are as Americans. I mean, we, people came to America for religious liberty. The, one of the first major events in American history was the first great awakening where a third of the people came to faith in Christ. Many of the preachers in the, this is the 1700s, many of the preachers in the 1700s thought that this is the new Jerusalem. We're ushering in. And so for the, the city of man and the city of God to kind of get morphed together began to happen. I think the corrective word that we need that Augustine gives is, you know, the city of God and the city of man are two separate things. 
The city of God cannot be shaken. The city of God is built on a foundation that cannot be torn away. Jesus is a king that can never be moved. The city of man is always changing. (laughs) But the city of God is eternal and secure. Don't forget your true identity and security and life and peace that is there. But for now, Jeremiah is saying to these people is God has sent you to Babylon. But for now, God has sent you to Atlanta. And that gets us to the second point, which is the city of man. God had sent these people to Babylon. He had these reasons for it. And again, the same way, God has sent you here to live in Atlanta, to be a part of this community. And he has reasons for that. And then this gets back to this point that I was making in the beginning I'm going to scroll a lot here, so maybe close your eyes if you get dizzy. Um, this gets back to the, the gathering. Golly, this is way at the beginning. The gathering and the scattering of the church. Unless you get this, your, 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 your life as a Christian is going to be very frustrating. This moment right here, the gathering, is so special. You have to have it. You have to have it. If you didn't have it, and you just went out there all the time, you'd forget who you actually are. You'd forget your true citizenship. You'd forget who the true king really was. You'd start to think that the political, the worldly political leaders were the more powerful people. You'd start to think your boss had true power. (laughs) You'd start to think that Value is measured by wealth and riches and success. You'd start to believe all of these city of man things. And so you need the gathering. You need this rhythm to be reminded, oh yeah, (laughs) Jesus is Lord. Oh yeah, Jesus is my living hope. Oh yeah, Jesus is the one who has all authority. Oh yeah, Jesus is the one who speaks truth. We have to have the gathering. You need your Bible study. The church has this great rhythm of gathering and scattering, and we need the gathering. And the better you gather, this is so true. I want you to hear this. The better you gather, the better you'll scatter. The more you leave here believing that you have an identity in the Lord Jesus Christ and that he loves you and that you're one of his people and he's going to protect you and, and that, that, you have a, that your name is written in the book of life, and you have an eternal inheritance and open. The more you believe that, guess what? When you leave here, you won't have to go out there and be clamoring around for an identity and be clamoring around for people to recognize you and affirm you. Yeah, of course it's nice to be recognized and affirmed, but you won't, you won't need it because you'll know that God loves you and God sees you and God loves you. So the better you gather, then the better you'll scatter. You'll actually scatter as a representative of the greatest kingdom ever, the kingdom of Christ, this eternal kingdom with the greatest king ever. You'll you'll, you'll scatter as an ambassador. But guess what? The better you scatter, the better you'll gather. If you really scatter as a representative of Jesus and you live out your week representing him, praying for the city, and seeking to be a witness for the Lord in a confusing time and place. Let me just tell you, if you lived your life like that, you wouldn't miss church. 
you wouldn't miss community group. You would be so eager (laughs) to get around the people of God. You would long for worship. The, The reason so many of you coming to church is not a big deal, it's something that it's not high priority, is because you've assimilated. Your worth is coming from out there somewhere. And so this is just a bonus thing. It's not a reminder of your actual foundational identity. The better you gather, the better you'll scatter, and the better you scatter, the better you'll gather. This is so important, this rhythm in the life of the church. And what we see in the text today is, is to the scattering church, if you will, to the people of God in exile, Again, this warning against assimilation and against separation. Look at verse eight with me. Basically what God is saying here, this is very interesting. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie. They are prophesy, They are not prophesying you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now, what does that text mean? That's kind of confusing text. What was happening at this time is there was other people claiming a prophetic word among the people. And they were saying, the exile's not gonna last long. We're about to go back to Jerusalem. And people believed them. I mean, of course, everybody, and that was good news. A little thing on, on somebody who claims to be a prophet, if, they, if somebody claims to be a prophet and they go around saying the thing that their audience really, really wants to hear, Pro tip, they're probably not a prophet, okay? And so that's exactly what is happening here. These guys were getting a name for themselves because they were saying the thing that everybody wanted to hear. But, but God now through the real prophet Jeremiah is saying, I didn't send these guys. They're, they're lying to you. They're deceiving you. And then what he says, you're going to be there 70 years, <laughs> So so they kind of were going over there thinking, we're not going to go over there. We're just going to separate. We're not going to have to touch the Babylonians. We're going to have to engage with them. We're going right back home to Jerusalem. But then God says, no, you're going to be there 70 years, and I have a plan for you to be there. Don't separate. But look at verse 5. Verse 5, he says, build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens. Eat produce. Don't wait around to start your life, right? I mean, people were saying, well, I'll get back to Jerusalem and then I'll take a wife and then I'll start my life. No, he's saying, no, take wives, have sons, daughters, take wives for your sons. You're gonna have grandchildren over there. Increase, multiply, do not decrease. And then he says something shocking. Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of this horrible, sinful, wicked city that I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord. This is a shocking statement on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In the ancient world, people believed that gods were territorial. So the God of Israel had jurisdiction over Israel. Another God had jurisdiction over you know, that area. That's the way that the world believes. Now that's never, what we see in scripture is that the Lord is the God of heaven and earth. But people adopted this false understanding of God. This would have been a shocking statement for them, that the Lord God of Israel is actually the Lord over all of these people, and we should be praying to God on their behalf. You see what God's saying here? They've been taken away from their home. 
It's the hardest thing they've ever gone through. They, they, they just endured the tragedy of tragedies at the hand of these Babylonians, these godless people. And God is saying, I have sent you here. This is where you're going to live. You're gonna be here 70 years. <laughs> you're gonna work here. You're gonna bring up children here. You're gonna be a part of this community. I, I've sent you to Babylon. Pray for Babylon. I want you to be a part of the economic community. I want you to have gardens. I want you to sell produce. I want you to build real estate. I want you to invest into this community and seek its welfare. Now you just see the people, you want us to do business with these people? God's saying, yes. You want us to raise our kids here in Babylon? God's saying, yes, and grandkids. It's a good word to us. Now, now this requires a lot of wisdom. It's not an easy path. It's not an easy path if you're working for a very secular company that wants to celebrate things that do not please the Lord, how, how, do, you, how do you maneuver that? How do you hold on to confessional Christianity and live as an ambassador in that kind of setting? That requires a lot of wisdom. That's hard. It's not going to be comfortable. But you've heard me say this before. We can't all work for Chick-fil-A. Maybe God has you there as an ambassador in this dark place. And again, if a situation is very harmful, again, to use the ambassador language, sometimes the ambassador has to leave, but that shouldn't be our first impulse when things get uncomfortable. Again, with our children, yeah. So I know, I know there's a lot of things that your children are going to hear. They're going to be exposed. To. It's probably different than a lot of our childhoods. It's crime. The city can be dangerous. People believe, if you believe these things about Jesus, you're crazy, you're out of touch. But does that mean that we're just supposed to escape? No, I think this passage is saying the opposite. Seek the welfare of the city. Don't, don't be assimilated into the city, right? Don't adopt its value system. Don't, don't become of it. But also, don't, here's, here's what it's saying. Don't despise the city. I think it's very easy to start despising the very people that God has sent you to. And, and if you despise them, you'll just exploit them and you'll take all the goods and you'll create for yourself a very comfortable and very insulated existence. What God is saying here is invest in the community, serve these Babylonians, pray to God on their behalf. And you know, we see the same impulse in the early church. I mean, the early church Christians, I mean, where did Christianity start? It didn't start in the rural places. In fact, the, the rural area of the Roman world was called, called the Paganus. You hear the word, pagan. <laughs> that's where all the pagans lived, in the rural area. The, the Urbanus, where the cities were, that's where the Christians were. Do you see what God is doing in this passage? You know, there's, a, there's an old phrase that says, Oliver Wendell, Oliver Wendell Holmes said this. He says, you can be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Have you ever heard that phrase? Oliver Wendell Holmes said that. You're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. And what he's saying is, if you think about all these spiritual things all the time, you're not practical. But actually, what Jeremiah and Augustine is saying to us is actually, if you really want to do earthly good, you'll be heavenly-minded. You'll understand who you are as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, and then you can move out into the world seeking its good, seeking its welfare. 
Not, not having to seek an identity, not having to seek its approval all the time, but you could actually work for its good. Do, do, you, do you believe that? Is that how you live? Minded in your citizenship as a citizen of the city of God and therefore useful in the city of man for the kingdom purposes. You know, you've, told me, you've heard me tell this story before, but I got a, an old buddy that's got this Italian meat sauce recipe. He's an Italian guy. And I like to think of it as a recipe that's been in his family from generations all the way back from some small town in Italy. And he brings that recipe over to the United States and, and he's cooked it. And it's amazing, delicious meat sauce. What he has done, and this happens a lot, he has taken something from the old world. He took something from the old place, Italy, his old roots, and he's brought it into the new world. He's brought it into America and it's helped shape our life now in the new world. Really what Christians do, and this is the impulse that we, we, ha- we must have, is we actually, we do the same thing, but, but it's the opposite. We're always borrowing from the new world and bringing it back into the old world. What it really means to be a Christian is to live out the ethic of the new Jerusalem, to live out the ethic of the eternal city. You know, we are a people of a city. One day, there's gonna be a great gathering like we see here in Jeremiah. And God is going to be gathering his people from all nations, and we are going to be with our Lord. And, and Jesus himself is going to reign. And it's going to be a city of order and of peace and of wonder and of beauty and of, and of kindness and of goodness. It'll be that way because Jesus himself will be reigning. He'll be the king. And, and he will keep the order according to his beautiful design. That's who we are. That's who we're destined for. That is our true home. And the way that we can live this life now, the way we're called to live this life now is to borrow from that, as it were, to take the recipes from the new world and to bring them back into the old world, to, to, take, to live out our citizenship in the city of God, in the city of man, to be heavenly-minded, and thus... <laughs> to be earthly good. And you know what? Here's the deal. We should be good at this. We should be good at this because this is exactly what our Lord does. This is exactly the impulse of Jesus. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. With with his eternal glory in mind, with the ingathering of his people in mind, he endured all the miseries of this life. He endured all the shame of the cross. He endured all the weight of the punishment of our sin. And, and if we know him, if we live into him, if we understand what he is calling us to, we will do the same. We are a people of a city, an eternal city with an eternal king. Is that who you are? Is that how you understand your life? And if you do... You'll be able to move out into this city as secular, as broken, as corrupt as it may be sometimes and bring about welfare and good and peace and stability. Let's pray. Father, we need the gathering and we need the scattering and we're about to scatter And I pray for this church. I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would scatter well 
as ambassadors looking to Jesus, finding our life and identity in him. Lord, give us faith. Give us eyes to see these things. Give us faith to believe. And Father, help us to scatter well so that you may be pleased and that your, your good news, the hope of knowing Jesus, that worship may go out through us. Lord, do this work in our hearts among us and through us now. I pray in Jesus' name.